Well, good morning, church, once again. This morning, as Al so wonderfully led us last, last week, um, this morning we're starting our celebration of Advent. And Advent uh, simply means uh, coming or arrival. Uh, and uh, this celebration is going to help us focus our attention on Jesus Christ birth and his ministry, as well as his promise return. Uh, it starts the fourth Sunday before Christmas, and that would be today, and ends on Christmas Eve. And for us this year, uh, we have the, the privilege that Christmas Eve actually uh, is on a Sunday. So we will be celebrating uh, Christmas. Actually, Christmas is on a Sunday. So we will be celebrating Christmas together here at the church. Now, celebrating Advent helps us do a few things. It helps us, it reminds us of that coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it helps us cut distractions of the Christmas season and focus our attention not just on his birth, but also on his redemptive acts and his glorious return, which we uh, anticipating uh, are, are expecting. Okay? And one of the, one of the things of, of of Advent celebration is, is the Advent wreath, which is what you see right here this morning. And this wreath um, represents uh, what we are celebrating. Uh, the evergreens that you see help to symbolize the new everlasting life through Jesus Christ. Uh, the wrath consists of five candles, as you can see, the five candles right there. Four candles around the wreath uh, and one white candle, which represents Christ, which will be lit uh, on Christmas morning. Um, and the candles just simply represent the light of the world that is coming to us, that has come to us. It has come into a darkness of our lives, and, and it brings new life and hope. So this morning, what we want to do is, before we begin our preaching, we, we want to ask Michelle Coward and her son Romello to read... These scriptures, Isaiah 49, 6, and John 1, 4, 5, um, and light the first candle for us this morning. So let's welcome them up. Isaiah 49, 6. He says this to light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring that back the, per, the preserves of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. John 1, 4 through 5. In him was the life, and the life was the light of the men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. Amen. Thank you, buddy. Well, as we get started, uh, open your Bibles to Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. And we are going to talk today about this light that came into the world. 
as we look at as we look at this promise see Jesus Christ the, the birth of Jesus Christ what it represents it represents God's faithfulness to keep his promises amen that's what it represents so we're going to read Galatians 4 4 and 5 it says this but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons let us pray Father We thank you that even this morning we get to address you as Father. That we get to come to you, Lord, and we get to hear our Father's word. But Lord, this was only made possible in that you sent forth your Son. And so, Lord, we pray that this truth of Christmas, this truth of the child who was born in a manger would affect our hearts this morning. Father, that we may be able to see how faithful, how merciful, how good you are to us so that we would be able to stand firm and walk according to your promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, one of the things that I love the most about being a parent, especially about being a parent of small children, is their blind trust in the promises of daddy and mommy. Just to give you an example of this, about two months ago, two, three months ago, I promised my six-year-old daughter and my, my soon-to-be five-year-old son, you, you saw them up here, a little restless, uh, I promised them that for Christmas, Daddy, Daddy and Mommy were going to buy them a Wii. Now, they have been to some of their friends' house who have Wiis, and, you know, they've played around and stuff for a few times, and they have been asking for one for a while now. And so I promised them that for Christmas, they would get one. As you can imagine, making such a promise is quite dangerous. It's a dangerous thing because, because you are bound to having them ask you every single day for months on out if it's Christmas yet. In fact, making that kind of promise probably doesn't serve my wife much. Because she's the one that has to hear their questions all day long. And if you're a parent, you know how continuous and annoying these questions can become. You see, so my job as a dad is I just stir up the pot, go to work, and then poor Christine is left behind to deal with it. But there is something wonderful about these questions. Every time my son asks me from today until Christmas, Daddy, is Christmas here yet? His question becomes a sweet reminder that he remembers Daddy's promise. And better yet, he believes it. 
If you were to ask my son today, after church, what is daddy getting you for Christmas? He will not hesitate to tell you, my daddy is getting me a wee. He walks firmly every day knowing that when Christmas comes, daddy's promise will be fulfilled. But imagine, church, if when I come home from work, my son would say to me, Daddy, are you sure you are going to buy me a Wii? Or imagine if I came home and my son said to me, Daddy, I asked Grandpa to buy me the Wii for Christmas. What would that reveal? It would reveal that my son has ignored my promise. It would reveal that in his little heart, he can't conceive that his dad could be so gracious and giving to keep what he has promised. And church, this is our posture so often when it comes to our Heavenly Father's promise. We hear them and we read them and we say we believe them, but we walk as if his promises were too good to be true. And this is the issue that Paul was addressing in the Galatian church. They had heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, giving of himself for the forgiveness of their sins. And shortly after, they were turning away from him into a distorted gospel based on works. In their desire to please God and to receive the inheritance that God promised to those who are in Christ, they were ignoring the promise altogether. And at best, they were misunderstanding it. And this is what Paul tells us in Galatians 3, verses 1 and 3. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians. And just the foolish there. It's being very, very nice in its translation. Because what he's really saying is, you idiots, you stupid Galatians, what has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And this is what Paul is saying. Are you guys so foolish? Do you not remember how you received the promise of the Holy Spirit? Did you earn it somehow? Or wasn't it freely given to you by faith? And now by the Spirit you have become sons and daughters in Christ and heirs according to what God has promised. Are you now seeking to perform your way into the inheritance? That is foolish. You see, the problem with these believers was they had a view of God as as being a boss. They were being taught by false teachers called Judaizers as a work-based religion where they had this picture of God being distant and separated and far, sending us his word, which included a basic job description that included the laws of Moses, 600 of them to be exact. And that basically meant their job description. And if you do your job well, then God is nice to you and he likes you. 
And if you don't do your job well, then God doesn't like you and he's not nice to you. That was the basic misunderstanding that God is a boss and he is sort of giving us this job description and he's evaluating our performance. Church, we, we are no different than the Galatian church. We often have a wrong view of God and we fail to understand what he has promised us. I know not many of us are placing our hope and trust in circumcision or the observation of days and the abstaining of any food for any sanctification. I know for sure I'm not trusting that. We eat red meat every Friday during Lent, okay? But my friends, our hearts are not gospel-centered sometimes. By nature, our hearts will always drift from God's promises in Christ and into trusting and walking into other things. We build our own set of rules and we place our hopes in them. In our desire to please God, we view God's promises with an emphasis on what is God asking us to do instead of the emphasis it being, what has God already done? And so we go hard after the practices, and we feel we will get closer to God instead of, of going hard after God himself. And after years of this, we become extremely prideful and depressed. We either walk in the distorted glory of our own achievements. Man, I had, I had quiet times all this week. And I I led our family and family worship. And I took my wife out on a date night. I evangelized my co-worker. And if that wasn't enough, I helped the Prados move to West Miami. (laughs) God must be pleased. Or we are dragging ourselves through the distorted misery of our failures. Man, I keep watching pornography. And I haven't read my Bible. And I screamed at my kids today. And all I did this Saturday was watch football. God must be really, really disappointed in me. We are so blinded to this church. But we are all prone to this. This is why we are easily angered at God and question him when we go through trials in the midst of what we perceive as obedience. This is why we are judgmental sometimes when we see a parent that doesn't parent their children the way we do. Or when others don't agree with the practices that we agree on. This is why we grow discouraged to the point of apathy in the midst of our struggle against sin. Because we distorted the promises of God and we don't understand the gospel. And instead of walking firmly in the liberating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we ignore it and we add to it as if God's promises wasn't enough for us. And so as part of this Advent series, I believe God's desire for us is that we would understand God's promises in Christ. So that we would celebrate the fulfilled promise of his first coming and live like my son Sebastian, expecting to receive him in his second coming as God our Father has promised.
This is what I think God wants us to understand this morning. Those who are God's children walk in God's promises. Church, those who are God's children walk in God's promises. Now, in order for us to walk in God's promises, we need to understand that God promises, we need to understand God's promises, and we need to understand that God's promises are found in Christ. God's promises are found in Christ. In Him is their yes and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And I like the NASV version of this verse, for it says this, For as many as are the promises of God, in Him they are yes. Therefore, also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. And so if we are to walk firmly in God's promises, we need to look no further than Christ. This is what Paul is doing in our text this morning. He is pointing them and us to Christ in verse 4. And he is saying, look here. Okay? Look here. Here is the proof of your inheritance. Here is the assurance that God has given you that you can walk in his promises instead of your loss. And he wants us to consider three things, okay? Three things this morning. He wants us to consider the genesis of the promise. He wants us to consider the gratification of the promise. And he wants us to consider the glory of the promise. So let's start on point one, the genesis of the promise. Let's start on verse four. He says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. See, what Paul is reminding the Galatians is that the birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. But in particular, it was the fulfillment of the promise of blessing that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and further explained in Genesis 15. God had promised Abraham to make him a great nation and in him all the nations of the earth or the families of the earth would be blessed. But the issue was that Abraham was an old man and he was childless. Yet God had him look at all the stars and in, in the heavens and he said to him, can you number the stars? Of course not. So shall, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now it was extremely important for Paul to point out the genesis of the promise of blessing in the offspring of Abraham because those who opposed Paul were saying this, okay? This is what the Judaizers were trying to teach the Galatians. They were saying this. Let's assume that God began his dealings with Israel by making a promise and calling it for faith. But you can't deny, Galatians, that 430 years later, he thought it needful to lay down the law for Israel. 
And the most natural thing to assume is that even if one does begin with faith in a promise, one ought to then be completed and perfected by engaging his will and effort to keep the law and show himself worthy of the promised inheritance. So you see, we are simply taking Paul's converts and applying to their individual lives what God did in redemptive history. Beginning with faith, with a promise, but then go on to add your work to God's in keeping the law in order to become worthy of the blessing that was promised. That was their teaching. That's the way they viewed the promise and the way they viewed the law. But Paul calls this foolishness. And Paul's response in Galatians 3, 15, 18 is this. There are, among, there are among men and between God and men packs that cannot be broken. God made one with Abraham and his offspring. The pact was that the inheritance of salvation would come not to all Abraham's descendants, but to the seed, which is ultimately the Christ. And all who are in him receive the inheritance. Then he says in verse 17, I'm paraphrasing here, guys. Therefore, in the law, giving 430 years later, God is not putting the inheritance on a new basis. He's not saying, once I taught you to trust me, now I teach you to work for me. Once I taught you to rely on grace, now I teach you to earn merit. Once I taught you to magnify me through child likeness now i teach you to magnify yourself through legalism no god does not contradict his covenant in this way he does not command uh, contrary ways of salvation if god had set the inheritance on a new basis and taught people to earn their salvation he would have nullified grace and opposed the promise and promoted pride and canceled the stumbling block of the cross the law is holy and just and good, but it does not teach us to engage in legalism. It teaches us our need of the promise and the obedience which comes from faith. Paul wanted them to understand that Abraham was counted righteous 430 years prior to the law because of his faith in the promise not because of his self-righteousness, but because of his faith. And if we are to be children of Abraham and heirs of the same promise, we also had to place our trust in the promised salvation fulfilled in Christ and not in our ability to conform to the law. But what is even greater to see when we look at this phrase in verse 4, fullness of time, fullness of time, is that God's promise of blessing not only goes back 430 years prior to the law, but it goes back to 2100 years prior to Abraham receiving the promise. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in what is called in scholarly circles the Proto-Evangelium. A Latin word for the first gospel, but since we're not scholars, we will not use it. 
we'll just call it the first pronouncement of the gospel. <laughs> and this is what the verse reads. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here is, here is God giving this, this first proclamation of the gospel. He's actually speaking to the serpent. And he's saying to the serpent, I will make you and your offspring enemies with her and her offspring. I will do that. You see, if it wasn't because God would put enmity between his children and the world, we would just be in the world. We would love the world, boy. But God himself, he puts enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And here we are able to see the Genesis, the beginning of the promise of blessing is much older than the giving of the promise to Abraham. We can see that even in the Garden of Eden, God was already promising a blessing of redemption. Now, as Eve is standing there hearing God's proclamation of the gospel to repent to, to, to the serpent, I'm sorry, I'm sure she didn't understand fully what God was talking about. But we have an advantage. We have Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. We are able to see that the birth of Christ is the fulfillment of the very words of God to them at the Garden of Eden. But what I want to appeal to our reasoning this morning concerning the words that Paul uses in verse 4. Let's read them again. He says, but in the fullness of time. But in the fullness of time. You see, what this verse is telling us, church, is that God did not react to the fall of humanity as if it took him by surprise. God is not promising things along the way, reacting to what we do and fail to do. But what we see here is that God is in control. The birth of Jesus was not God's way of cleaning up after our unwanted mess, but it was his divine appointment set by the counsel of his wisdom to be fulfilled at, this, at its fullest point. It was a unique occasion when all the parts of history that had to occur had occurred. Each and every detail that had to take place was now in place, and it was in place by the power of a sovereign God and the wisdom of his will. Clearly, Paul wants us to realize that the timing of the historical appearance of the father's son was something agreed upon and fixed between the father and the son from all eternity. God sent forth his son. The very fact that the son was sent shows that he existed before he was even born in Bethlehem. His sending from heaven does declare his divinity. Jesus Christ is God the Son, fully equal to the Father in glory and might. His sonship is eternal. He is the only begotten Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, who lived with his Father in glory from eternity past. 
When the time had fully come, the eternal divine son of God came into the world as the fulfillment of God's promise. And this is what Paul has been arguing here with the Galatians. In fact, this is what he started with in verses 1 through 3. He is reminding them that just as the Roman law gave fathers the right to fix the time when his son would receive his state, his inheritance, in the same way God the Father determined when God the Son would come and give all whom by faith had become God's children their inheritance. This is the God who promises to sanctify those whom he's justified and glorify those who he's sanctifying. He is sovereign over all, and his promises are never too good to be true. Therefore, we can walk in his promises with no doubting, no questioning. Our circumstances are not outside of God's control, and in Christ, our deliverance is for sure. In his timing, those who are his children will receive the fullness of his inheritance because it is not determined by our obedience but by his loving, sovereign promise. Isn't that encouraging? But the encouragement doesn't stop there. Let's look at our second point, the gratification of the promise. Verse 4 again. It says this. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, okay? Born of woman, born under the law. What Paul is doing here is through this wonderful verse, he is showing us not only the genesis of the promise as an eternal plan of the Godhead, but it was a plan that would only be gratified at the expense of the humiliation of the eternal Son of God. You see, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, death and sin came into the world. And as we all know, Ever since, we, we are all born sinners. I mean, you, you saw little Jonathan, right? Whom we dedicated this morning. That's my little boy, right? Thanks to his mother's genes, he is as cute as he could be. <laughs> and I love him. But inside his little heart, he is filled with the curse of sin. When we say, Johnny, you may not touch there, he will look at you. In an instant, he will touch it. And if you grab him and give him a little stronger command, if you know what I mean, he will cry in anger and rage. But as we saw in Genesis 3.15, God promised that the offspring of Eve would bruise the head of the serpent. This offspring is Jesus Christ, born of a woman. That is what Paul is saying here. He is telling his audience that the promised offspring, the one whom all time had waited for, the one Abraham, Moses, and the prophets spoke of with great anticipation, yet died without ever seeing its fulfillment, was not just fully God in his nature, but he was also fully man. You see, the apostle knows the history of Jesus' nativity. At the time of the birth of Jesus, it was customary, it was customary to speak of being born of a man. A custom to which all the genealogies other, other than Jesus's were, were accustomed to, and, and they give testimony of, okay? 
But here we're saying that it says that he was born of a woman. Now, indeed, he's born of a woman. Because he, indeed, he was born of a virgin. As foretold by the prophet Isaiah. This child was born without a man. Born of a woman. The son of God, the father, who was sent. Speaking of his divinity. But now is being born. Which speaks of his humanity. You see, unlike little Jonathan, Jesus was not conceived through the act of sinful man. Not that the act of conception is sinful. It's actually a wonderful gift of God. But the virgin conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit of God was necessary in order for the eternal Son of God to become a man. When Jesus was delivered by the Virgin Mary and laid in a dirty, smelly manger, God the Son had taken our flesh and our nature with all its temptations, with all its aggravations, but without original sin. My friends, I want us to contemplate this truth. How can we doubt the promises of God in light of the humiliation that the Son of God put himself through in order to fulfill God's promise? The transcendent maker and sustainer of the universe. The one from whom all things were made. The one of whom the seraphim endlessly proclaim, holy, 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 who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, humbled himself. He didn't hold equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he came as a man. But let's look at the text again. Okay, Not only did he come as a man. It says, born under the law. You see, as if his incarnation was not humiliating enough, Paul points us to a feature of the incarnation that just adds to this humiliation. What does the apostle mean by the phrase born under the law? He means that the son was born a servant. That is, born a Jew under Moses. The son of the father was born a servant of the Lord his God, to whom he owned a perfect personal and perpetual obedience. Jesus was bound to obey God's law in its entirety. Let me illustrate this for you. Uh, When I was growing up... um, my mom was pretty tough. I lived with her till I was 10. And even after that, I lived with an aunt for three years, and she was extremely tough. Uh, there were rules in the house. There rules. There were rules for cleaning. There were rules for sleeping. There were rules for eating. But you know what? There was only one person who did not come under those rules. You know who that person was? The maker of the rules. But in Jesus' case, the maker of the rules allowed himself to be placed under the authority of those rules. Jesus was born and raised and lived under the law. He allowed the law to exercise full authority over himself. He had made the law, but he became submissive to it. The one who instituted the right of circumcision was circumcised himself. My friends, he did this in order that we may receive the promise. He fulfilled the requirements of the law and he lived and 
a life that we have not been able to live and will not ever be able to live. The purest being in all creation, after 33 years of perfect, active obedience, also died under the law by accepting the death penalty that we deserved for us breaking it. This is the reason Paul is calling them and any of us who place our trust in our works foolish. Because as he stated in chapter 3, verses 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Church, do we understand that Jesus submitted himself to the law in order that we would be freed from it? This is why it's so foolish for us to place our trust in any other thing or act or practice. Whenever we fail to conform to God's law, we must rest on the one who did. And whenever a brother or a sister fails to conform to God's law, we must point their gaze to the one who did and not to the law he or she must conform to. This is walking in God's promises. My friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power unto salvation. It is the power unto salvation for yesterday's sins, today's sins, and the sins you will commit tomorrow. The power unto salvation is not how hard you try to be godly. The power unto salvation is not how many times you pray today. The power unto salvation is not whether you homeschool your child or not. The power unto salvation is not whether you're a stay-at-home mom or whether you tithe this morning or whether you're going to go out with your home group leader and have accountability, the power unto salvation is this. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. My friends, this is the power that melts the hardest of hearts. This is the power that drives us to our knees in humble repentance, knowing this truth is in the depths of our hearts and standing in faith in its promises. It's what transforms us and sanctifies us from glory to glory. Now, are there areas in your life you desire change in? It won't happen as you lift your gate, as you... Keep your gaze on yourself. You know how it will happen? It will happen as you place your gaze on the one who lived perfectly for you and died the death you lacked your lack of change to serve. You know why your gaze must be fixed on him? And not your sin? Think about it. And this brings us to our third and final point. And I think this point will answer this question for us. Point number three, the glories of the promise. We must face our our gaze on him because God is fully aware of your sin. And he is the only one who has done and can do something about it. This is the glory of the promise and our final point. Verse 
verse 5 says, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, we often talk about Jesus dying for our sins. In fact, many Christians talk about it, and it can sometimes carry very little weight, right? I mean, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. You know, it sort of becomes like, like a cliche to some of us. But I like the way Paul describes the atoning death of Christ on our behalf here in this passage. He is telling us that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, so that in order that we would be redeemed, that he would redeem those who were under the law. See, Paul describes those whom the son redeems as those under the law. And by those under the law, what he, what he means, what, what is this description about? He, he's pointing to those who know they are obliged to obey God's law. And from the heart, they know this. They know right from wrong. They know that that is the, God's law and they must obey it. But... In their bondage of sin, they are powerless to satisfy the law's requirements. His point here is to get our attention of those who are beset with original sin. That would be all of us. From whom the law has proved to be a covenant of condemnation, bondage, and death. Guys, if this doesn't describe you this morning, we can have a talk afterwards. But for many here this morning, this is your state. You want to satisfy the requirements of God's law. But the law has beat you down. It has done what it was intended to do. It was intended to render you guilty as charged so that you could see your need of a Savior. And for such as these, the apostle has has good tidings of great joy. The Son came to bring release and rescue to you. In His life and in His death, the Son rendered to God the obedience required by the law. And on that basis, He has asked the Father to apply the merits of His obedience to all sinners who believe. Thus the Son answers all accusations against His people and quiets quiets their restlessness. He gains their access to God and secures the acceptance before God. Now, are there any of us here this morning with restless hearts? Feeling the weight of condemnation? Unsecure of where we stand with God? If you have never believed in the redeeming death of the Son of God, I plead that you will believe today. And if you have believed, yet your heart is still restless, I plead you look to Christ and receive his freeing rest. Christ did not purchase his people so that they might be retained or remain under the bondage of the law. He purchased them in order to take them out from under that bondage. He purchased them to make them his sons and daughters. Look with me to the last portion of our text. 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is amazing, guys. Now, to appreciate the stunning reality of our placement as heirs in the household of God, we need to remember how God viewed us before our adoption. Very important. You see, because apart from the grace of adoption, we were not children of God. It doesn't matter what anyone says. This might come to you as a surprise. But when you were born, before Christ, you were not a child of God. And it was, uh, I think it was President Johnson. I'm not sure of this, okay? I think it was President Johnson. Don't quote me on this. But I think it was him that said, all men are created by God. Therefore, all men are children of God. But this could not be further from the truth. God does not view all men as his children. If he did, there will be no need for adoption. Let's remember how God viewed us before our adoption. This is what he says. We were children of disobedience. Ephesians 2.2. We were by nature not children of God, but children of wrath. Ephesians 2.3. The point is, in adoption, the father gives the full rights and privileges that belong to his own son to those who were neither his children nor his heirs by nature and birth. Now, I know we have many in this church who have been adopted or have adopted children or are in the process of adopting But for those of us who have not been a part of this wonderful experience, we need to understand that in Paul's understanding of adoption, adoption was defined by Roman law and widely practiced in Roman life. Roman emperors would adopt men not related to them by blood and in in order to give them their office and their authority. More broadly speaking, when a son was adopted, he was in in legal respects equal with those into his into his new family. The adopted son had the same name, the same inheritance, the same standing, as, and the same rights as the natural born sons. So what Paul is saying here is that God, who saw us at our worst, has taken, has taken the unlovable, the undeserving, and he has adopted us and sat us at his table. Church, God isn't a boss to us. God is our Father. God isn't absent. He's very involved as a father is with his children. And God is not seeking from his children performance. He's seeking loving intimacy and relationship with them. God knows that through loving relationship and intimacy, good things happen in our lives. But it's because of God. And who he is, he is our dad. Not necessarily because we are making ourselves into appropriate children. God looks at you and he looks at me and he says, call me dad. What? Call you dad? Yeah, I'm your dad. Boy, that wasn't what I was expecting. 
I was expecting me to call you boss, for you to give me a job description, and for me to do it cowering in fear. And if I fail, I expect something terrible to happen to me. But dad, that's totally different. I can call you dad? Yes, I am your father. I've adopted you. You are my son. I've sent Jesus to die for your sins and your adoption. But many of us really struggle with a boss, employer, duty, bound, job description view of God. Lots of people do. Just go to the Bible and say, okay, just tell me what to do. And I'll do it because I don't want God to be angry. He's the problem with that. Okay? When we view God that way, okay, what we're viewing God is through the lenses of, of karma and not grace. Right? I mean, karma says, if I do this, then I move God's hand and he has to bless me. Right? I pick up my toys. I get an ice cream bar. Right? I don't cheat on my wife. I get a race at work. Right? Cause and effect. That's not the way God works. What we receive, we receive by grace because we deserve nothing. God is not an employer who gives us a job description, and if we do it well, then we get a bonus or we get a raise. God doesn't work that way. God does not work that way. God is our dad. Have you ever seen a good dad? that has 600 rules hanging on the fridge and told the kids, if you do this, I'll feed you dinner. (laughs) Or if you don't, you're in big trouble. That's the kind of God that these false teachers are presenting. Go to the law of Moses. Take the list of 600 things. Put it on the fridge and do it. Otherwise, God will not be happy. Have you ever seen a dad that was more concerned with performance than with relationship? A good dad. See, a good dad wants his kids to love him and obey him. But what he's concerned about is is his relationship with them. No father who has a two-year-old son is happy if he never sees the son. If he never plays with his son, if he never cuddles with the son, if he never hugs him or never eats fudge sickles with him. No father, no good father would be, would be happy that his son is sending him this resume of every six months telling him of all the good things he's done. I've done this, dad. Are you happy? Here's what I've accomplished. But that's the way we view God sometimes. God saw us at our worst. We don't have to act like a puppy at a storefront window, jumping up and down, making all these tricks in order for God to take us home. God loves us. He purchased us when we were dead in our sin. And he took us home.
and now we are his children. When I think about that, I want to jump through walls. When I think about how God took me home when I deserved his wrath, I want to obey him. I want to repent. I want to keep his commandments. Because he loves me. Not because he's going to be happy with me. Don't miss the freedom that comes from the security in knowing you are God's chosen son or daughter. We don't have to walk as if we were a puppy in a storefront. We can walk on his promises. God, the creator of all before the foundations of the earth, he looked into the window of eternity and saw you in your misery and in your shame. And he said, that is my son. That is my daughter. Though fractured by sin and desperately wicked when left to their own desires, you in Christ are precious to the Father in spite of your sin, in spite of your shortcomings. You are a child of the king and an heir of all that he has for you, a full member of the family. He loves you. He has a plan for you. He wants you to trust his unconditional love for you. Quit trying to earn what is already yours. Stop trying to deserve what cannot be lost. And walk in his promises. For you are a child of God. Let us pray. Father, we just want to thank you. Lord, there are no words that can that can describe. Lord, what this truth means to our hearts, Lord. We were fatherless, Lord. We had a wicked father. Who was a liar. And like him, Father, we were wicked ourselves and we were lost, marred by our sin. And with no merit of our own, Lord, you came and you chose us. Our worst of sins could not keep you away from choosing us. And so, Father, we want to live in that promise. We want to walk in that promise. Father, because when we walk in the light of the gospel, when our hearts are able to comprehend the magnitude of grace that we have received, we can obey. Because it's obedience that is produced by love.
And so, Lord, we pray that you would, that you would uh, pour out your spirit in us. If we kept reading your word, it would say that you have given us the promise of your spirit. And this is the way we are to grow through your spirit. So, Father, I pray that you would use your spirit this morning. Remind us of the truths of the gospel that we may obey you and love you with all our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, let us stand and worship the Lord. Church, this Christmas morning, December 25th, my children are going to run to the tree. And little Isabel and little Sebastian are going to open a box. And Lord willing, they're going to receive, a, they're going to receive their we. Unconditionally. Because daddy promised. Not because they behaved. Not because they did everything mommy and daddy wanted them to do. But because they're my children. I want you to know that God has promised a son, a redeemer, a savior of the world. And he's offering that to you. Not because you're good. In fact, you don't deserve it. But because he's God and he has promised a savior. And so if you have not believed in that, will you please believe? Will you walk in that promise? Will you walk in that truth? For the rest of us, let us walk in his promises and know that just as he promised his first coming and he delivered, we're awaiting a second coming and he will deliver. So let me, let me bless you. May the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to earth over 2,000 years ago to redeem you from the curse of the law that you could not conform to, may he bless you this week. May he protect you. May he, through his love and through his Holy Spirit, help you walk in the promises that he has given you in him. I pray in Jesus' name. You are dismissed.